I just kind of had my mind made up and I was trying to do penny stocks and all these other side hustles and that wasn't getting anywhere. But like I did have those failures and in the end, I'm glad that it happened because I learned that I really needed to have more cash flow. And I would have never landed on short-term rentals had long-term rentals worked for me. Imagine if I kept all those rentals that were cash flowing hundred bucks, 200 bucks a month, I would have never been able to generate the amount of cash flow and tax breaks that I do today. So it sucked going through that, but I learned a lot from it. Welcome to the physicians and properties podcast, the show where we teach you how investing in real estate can give you the freedom to practice medicine and live life how you want. Doctor. 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 Now, here's your host, Dr. Alex Schlow. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Physicians and Properties. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Schlow. Today, we had a just super fun recording, super great guest, whose name is also Alex. Alex Abio is just crushing it. He's a respiratory therapist who lived through and invested through the 2008 crash and was really forthcoming with how he ended up experiencing a foreclosure and a bankruptcy on a single family long-term rental property. And he talks a lot about his journey and how he was able to overcome those initial hurdles and the fear of getting back into investing in real estate. And what he did was ended up buying a luxury short-term rental property in the Smoky Mountains. That portfolio has grown dramatically to six luxury short-term rental properties in the Smokies and Gulf Shores, Alabama. He started a fund that has bought a hotel in Arkansas that they're going to transition into a boutique hotel, which we talk a bit about that. And they're looking at buying more hotels in the future. Alex is an incredible guy. He's a great networker. He really shares a lot about how networking and providing value ultimately is going to benefit you going forward. If this podcast provided some value for you, please pay it forward, share it with someone else. Let's get started with today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Physicians and Properties podcast. Today, I have another Alex on the podcast, Alex Savio. Super excited. He's got an incredible story. So glad he's here and willing to take time to chat with us tonight. Alex, how are things going? Good, good. How's it going? Uh, really excited to be here. Thanks for uh, having yeah. me on. Absolutely. Your story is incredible. Can't wait to share it. We'll just dive right in. Do you mind just kind of giving the listeners a little bit of your backstory and kind of how you got into real estate? Sure. Yeah, thanks. You say my story is incredible, but it wasn't incredible going through it. I wish that I had a better story to tell like the gurus who go from like zero to 100 rentals in one year with no money. That's not my story. And I can tell you there was a lot of ups and downs. And I think that's what's more common with uh, a lot of Americans, right? That That's everyone's story with me. So I have a W2 job. I'm a respiratory therapist, been doing that for 21 years. In fact, I met my wife in school, so she's also a respiratory therapist, but she's re been retired for the past three years. Started investing in the early 2000s. And like a lot of other investors made every single mistake in the book, started investing in long-term rentals, was greatly affected by the 2008 recession, had a lot of negative cash flowing properties. And at a certain point, I'm at the hospital working tons of overtime just to cover the mortgage. And I kind of get burnt out. You know, it's easy to get burnt out as a healthcare worker as it is, let alone covering the mortgages of all these properties where, you know, tenants aren't paying. So I did have failures in the sense that I, I had a property foreclosed on. 
but I had all of this knowledge with real estate and I knew that real estate was going to be the long-term play for me and the way to go. And so probably about five years ago, I started getting the itch to get back into real estate, have a ton of long-term rentals still in my portfolio. And just slowly over time, you know, the tenants are paying it off. Inflation is kicking in and properties are going up in value and rents are going up. Interest rates are getting better. So I start making a little bit of money, but I have this itch to really want to expand my portfolio because I want to become financial free like everyone else. And so eventually, almost three years ago today, I bought my first short-term rental and that was my bread and butter. Like I really enjoyed short-term rentals because of the cash flow, the process, and the amazing tax benefits. So yeah, we've kind of rolled that into like a small portfolio. I, I, I don't believe you need a large portfolio to be financially free. I have six luxury short-term rentals and I've snowballed that into a hotel now. Like a few months ago, we purchased our first hotel. That's awesome. Yeah. What an incredible story. You, you went through the valley, you came back up, climbed up the mountain. I think you're getting close to the peak, my friend, which is awesome. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. What was it like for you to make up your mind to get back into real estate? Or was there any hurdles that you had to jump through or things in particular that you're like, Hey, I'm going to, I learned this and now I know to focus on that. If that makes sense. Well, I had a bankruptcy and I had this mindset that I couldn't invest until X amount of years after you cleared bankruptcy, which is BS. I wish I would have knew that just as long as I found the deal. And because of that, I missed out on so many deals. Like 2013 was probably the best time to buy real estate. You know, I mean, the second time is now, but there was so <laughs> many deals, but I was like, man, I just kind of had my mind made up and I was trying to do penny stocks and all these other side hustles and that wasn't getting anywhere. But like I did have those failures and in the end, I'm glad that it happened because I learned that I really needed to have more cash flow. And I would have never landed on short-term rentals had long-term rentals worked for me. Imagine if I kept all those rentals that were cash flowing hundred bucks, 200 bucks a month, I would have never been able to generate the amount of cash flow and tax breaks that I do today. So it sucked going through that, but I learned a lot from it. Sure. Cash flow is definitely a good defensive thing to have and super protective of the asset. So yeah, glad to hear that you learned that. Why short-term rentals then? Other than, of course, the cash flow is a lot better, but why short-term rentals? I think a lot of this, I always say the harder you work, the luckier you get. And to be honest with you, I was just working my butt off and it kind of landed on my lap. I was working so much overtime, like a lot of healthcare workers doing doubles, staying over, picking up the holidays, uh, just to try to get back ahead. And at the same time, around 2016, somewhere around there, there was all of these politics on TV and I was glued to it. And they're like, hey, this politician is paying zero in taxes. <laughs> and I wasn't upset. I was like, well, how do I pay zero in taxes? Like, what do I have to do? And so I wound up hiring a CPA and she kind of guided me and she kind of threw this nugget like, you know what, you should really consider short term rentals because at the time, we we're trying to qualify for real estate professional status. And she's like, look, short-term rentals, they're a lot more work. So you could qualify more time and you'll get an amazing tax break. And so that kind of stuck in the back of my mind. And then COVID hit and real estate investing just became difficult. And at that time, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to network with a bunch of people, as many people as possible. And I remember this one investor, she said, you know what, I'm generating about $24,000 a month profit on three short-term rentals. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is that? You know, like, tell me more, but what's your profit like after $24,000, yeah. after mortgage fees? 
And she goes, no, you idiot. That's my profit. You're not listening to me. 24000 a month. And I, I'm thinking, well, that's my financial freedom number. Maybe I need to look more into this. So that's really what it was. The harder I worked, just reaching out there, talking to as many investors as possible. I probably talked to 500 different investors before I landed on her. And then she got me intrigued. And then I kind of went down this rabbit hole, like, where's the best short-term rental market? Is it worth it? I remember reading an article where one person said, I sold all my long-term rentals and bought short-terms. I said, what an idiot. That's a stupid move. And lo and behold, I wound up doing the same exact thing like a year and a half <laughs> later. So, Yeah. Well, it worked out for you, it sounds like. Going back, so for, for folks who don't know what real estate professional status is, do you mind just kind of sharing a little bit about that and why it's such a huge benefit? Sure. So remember, not a CPA did have a lot of failures. So I'm probably not the best <laughs> person to listen to, but I'll give you my understanding with it. Uh, the reason why you want real estate professional status is because there's some amazing tax benefits there, as, especially physicians, right? Mm -hmm. Physicians, if you have like a significant other who can hit real estate professional status, you can start using some of the losses from your real estate to help offset your W-2 income. So what we were trying to do was have about 750 real estate hours or material participation hours so for my wife. So that way, when we had losses from our real estate, and that's usually through depreciation and other tax right. benefits, right? Then we can use those losses to help offset my W-2 income. So let's say I'm a respiratory therapist who makes $150,000 a year, and I have $150,000 in tax write-offs, I can use that to help offset my W-2 income. So that's kind of the general explanation that I give people. There's a little bit more to it, but that's a pretty basic explanation. Yeah, it's a great explanation. It's got to be your primary job. You got to work in that more than any other, which is what makes it hard for physicians, respiratory therapists, medical professionals. But you hit the key point. Yeah, if you can get your spouse on board. Um, if your spouse is able to, I've been trying to pitch this to my wife for a couple of <laughs> years now. So hopefully she'll hear this and she'll be on board because uh, yeah. it's incredible, the opportunities. And you're exactly right. That's that and cost segregation studies, accelerated yes. depreciation. That is how the rich pay no taxes. And yes. it's something that everyone can do, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, incredible. I think tax benefits to real estate. It gets kind of understated and folks are always thinking about cash flow and appreciation, but the tax benefits can be really important. It can be a game changer and just another way uh, to gain yeah. value in real estate. Oh, it's huge. I mean, the first year after owning our first short-term rental, we get back a check for $41,000. That's what more than what most Americans yeah. take home, right? And here I am with a check. And so what do I do with it? I'm like, well, I got to get more properties. And <laughs> yeah. so I, I didn't spend the money. So I wound up buying more properties that gave me more cash flow, that gave me more tax benefits. So you wind up falling into this loophole where you do have to buy more properties because yeah. you don't want to pay taxes. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Also not a CPA, but this works really well with short-term rentals, cost segregation studies. We're doing it right now on one of ours as well. And yeah, it's exactly right. I know people who are buying one short-term rental every year for that same reason. So they can do that cost segregation study and write off on their taxes. They're 
are some changes happening with the government right now and, and the percentage of what you can depreciate is, is starting to decrease. I think right now it's at 80% and there's talks of yes. that decreasing even more with the current administration, but still an incredible opportunity to get all that depreciation up front instead of broken up over the 27 and a half years. So yes, super cool. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, how'd you find your first short-term rental, first market you invested in? randomly to be honest with you i mean i put out a rookie question out there and whenever you put out a rookie question the internet's pretty mean when you come out there vulnerable like hey how do i find this what is this so i got a ton of hate from like an online form they're like you idiot why don't you research it some more there's youtube videos but it was weird i probably got like a hundred replies and overwhelmingly like People would list like their top short-term rental markets. And a lot of people kept telling me about the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Like, where the hell is that? I, I've never even heard of it. <laughs> like, I live here in Southern California. Like, uh, I, I can't even locate Tennessee. I mean, I've never even <laughs> been there, right? And so I went into this mode where it was like, you know what? Just before this, I, I said, you know what? I don't care who it is. Who's the best tax professional out there? And so I wound up hiring her. And so I kind of went through this mindset of stop trying to do everything on the cheap and just hire the best professional out there. Because I always try to do it. I still today, I'll try to do electrical work my own, right? But it's <laughs> like, but people kept saying, well, you need to be in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. And I said, okay, if that's the best market, I'm going to go ahead. But who's the best real estate agent mm-hmm. in that market? And everyone kept saying this name. And, you know, I, you do need a little bit of luck on your side. At the time, July of 2020, nobody was buying homes. And, like, I called this agent, and she picked up the phone right away. And then I said, oh, I had this long conversation with her for about a couple hours. And then I said, can I come and visit you? It looks like two weeks from now I have that time off. And she said, yeah, I mean, if, if you're dumb enough to come visit me, I mean, I'll, I'll show you the homes, you know. <laughs> and so that's kind of how we built that relationship. And we've bought actually with her brokerage, we bought six short-term rentals. Wow. That's incredible. All in the Smokies? Are you in some other markets? Yeah. So we have three in Eastern Tennessee. And then I started networking with as many investors as possible, trying to learn the game and and share information. And I had a lot of friends who own properties in Gulf Shores, Alabama. Mm -hmm. I'm like, where's that? I don't even know where that is, right? I didn't even know they had a beach. What are you talking about? (laughs) And so we wound up at the same time, I wanted to expand my portfolio, get more tax breaks. And actually, is uh, one of my long-term rentals in a market, uh, Huntsville, Alabama. I had three homes there. One of my tenants was about to move out, and I'm like, I really don't want to fix this up. I called my property manager. I said, hey, do you think you could sell this? And she said, yeah, I have a cash buyer, quick close in, in 14 days, no contingencies. Wow. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I'm only cash flowing maybe 500 bucks altogether with that, that portfolio, yeah. maybe more, maybe 1000 bucks or something like that. And then I said, well, I love short-term rentals. I could get amazing tax breaks if I buy three more. And I get to kind of cross off the bucket list of owning a home on the beach. So I wound up doing a 1031 exchange, selling the rest of my uh, long-term rentals and getting uh, my properties in Gulf Shores, Alabama. That's awesome. Just so I can feel really bad about myself because we were also looking at places in the Smokies in like 2019. A four-bedroom like nice cabin was $290,000. And I was like, oh, that's too much. I'm not buying that. What did you pay for yours? If you don't mind me asking the first one and what's going now? Okay. So let me preface this. So I am cheap as hell. For for those (laughs) of you that don't know, like I'll never buy ketchup. I don't get it because I have free pack. Like I have a drawer full of free packets of ketchup, right? It's an Alex thing. 
<laughs> yes. And so like my long-term rentals, they're all anywhere from 60 to $80,000. Like I was buying them on the cheap and they'd rent for a thousand bucks a month. Right. And so when I go to my agent, she goes, this is the one house you need to buy. It's going to cash flow the best. Trust me on this. And I'm really hesitant. Right. And I said, well, how much does it cost? And she goes, $625,000. And I'm like, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Wait, wait, you have anything in the 200,000 range, 300,000? Yeah. But she was right. And that's where I had to step back and say, who's the expert here? Follow their guidance. So it was 625,000 bucks. And yeah, she told me it would generate $100,000 a year. It generated like over 130,000 the first two years wow. each year. Yeah. So that's awesome. we've been happy with yeah. it. Yeah, for sure. Right away to start. And I'm sure roughly, if you don't mind me asking, how much per month in cash flow are you making compared to your long-term rentals? Did that completely replace just that one yeah. short-term rental that completely replaced all the cash flow from the long-terms? Yeah, blew it out of the water. It wasn't even yeah. close. It was funny how you feel like an idiot. You're like, man, why didn't I do this earlier? Yeah. And so the first two years that average about $5,000 a month profit, like you'll have ups and downs, like summer is crazy where I remember the first full summer it that one home generated like 25 grand. You're talking like eight a night, every single night it's generating. And I don't get it, right? Remember I'm cheap. I yeah. stay at like, I stay at the circus when I go to Las Vegas, like I don't <laughs> spend money and, but it's different clientele and it replaced my wife's income where she was working part-time anyway. So that's why she was able to just walk away from her W2 right away. That's awesome. Just with one property. Incredible. One. Yeah, but one. yeah. Yeah. And now you got what, six and the hotel. So you're crushing it, I'm sure. So do you guys manage your own short-term rentals or do you have a property manager who manages your portfolio for you? What's that look like? We do. When I talked to my agent, she said, look, I know you're cheap as hell, but you could go look at all these homes and all those homes were older. And I said, you know what? We're trying to self-manage this from 2,000 miles away. I don't want to deal with a broken couch, broken TV. Let's just buy something brand new. So to be honest with you, in the Smokies, we bought three brand new properties just because we were scared, to be honest with you. We're working individuals. We're still middle class and we're 2,000 miles away. So we do self-manage this because what we find is that there's a lot of software that helps you automate the whole process. And if you give guests clear instructions for the most part, you're not going to get too many headaches. I mean, it's not fully automated. If any guru out there tells you I'm completely hands off, they're completely lying to you. You are going to get the uncomfortable 2 a.m. text saying, hey, the um, smoke detectors are chirping at me. What do I do? And so yeah. that's something you have to figure out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we use self-managed ours as well. Great. We use some software, Guesty and Turnover BNB, which is now Turno. That's been really helpful as well for coordinating cleaners. The biggest thing for us was the, the automated door locks. I think it's Schlage or Slage. I say it wrong all the time. But that was really awesome too. It just sends them the door code right away. And so there's a lot of ways to automate it and make it a lot more passive. But I completely agree. It is definitely far from completely passive to self-manage Airbnbs, even just one of them. I yeah. think if I were to get into, like, people always tell me, do you wish you would have gotten it, into it earlier? To be honest with you, I don't know if technology was there yet, uh, like 10 years ago to where I would have felt comfortable. Like, imagine leaving keys somewhere and then not having a, like, yes, we, we do put cameras in all of our properties, but initially to get over that fear of self-managing, like we have the cameras to where we could look in, the thermostat. Initially, like I would see guests like keeping the door open 
And I would go in there and I would turn the stupid like AC down or whatever it is, you yeah. know, because I'm like, you're letting it go. But that's just the mindset I had initially. And technology helped me get over a lot of that fear. Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a short-term rental up in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado here. And there was a guest just a couple of weeks ago who was like, hey, is there any AC in here? And in the night, it gets pretty cool when it was nighttime. And so sure enough, he was leaving the door open because he had a rip-roaring fire in the fireplace, I imagine. Yeah. And that's why it was so hot in there. And so it's funny what people would do in these homes that aren't theirs. You probably yeah. have some good stories or maybe not good stories of guests that have stayed there. What's one that sticks out in your mind of like a terrible guest experience? Yeah, like overwhelmingly, people are good just in general, right? I think overwhelmingly, you're not going to have that issue. And I would say about 98% of the people will be genuine good people. But you will have that like every month, we'll have one bad guest because just with the amount of guests that we have to deal with. But we had a brand new pool cabin. This is a three bed or four bedroom, four and a half bath, three levels. The downstairs has an indoor pool. We're excited because we're like, oh man, the indoor pools here in the Smokies bring in so much revenue. And someone rented it out and they poured bubble bath in the pool. <laughs> right. And we're like, what the heck's going on? Our cleaner shows up and there's this foam just kind of like, almost like imagine a rave or something where some type of party where there's foam just sticking out and they're like, there's no way we could clean this. And it's a back-to-back, -back, meaning there's a guest checking out. They checked out at 10 a.m. and there's someone coming in at 4 p.m. And there's no way they're going to clean it. And it's peak season. This next guest is coming in and he's paying me 900 and whenever you have something break in your short-term rental, right. what's the first, what do people say? Well, this is the reason why I rented this and it's not working. Yeah. They're always, it could be the blender. Like, hey, yeah. the blender's broken. <laughs> this whole reason why we rented this because of the blender <laughs> and I want a refund. And yeah. so we like to get ahead of it and put ourselves in the guest shoes and we wind up refunding him. I think we refunded him like 1500 bucks or something like that. And he still gave us a five-star review. That's and great. so we actually had to drain the pool, clean it, and then refill the pool, and then paying the pool cleaners to do all that. So I think if I were to pick any business, and if you told me that you would win 90% of the time, I would say, oh my gosh, sign me up, right? Even if I built a product like the latest phone and call it the A phone or something crazy, uh, you'll probably have some returns or where the product is uh, defective and times where you'll have to shell out money. But for the most part, I don't think I've ever had to give a full refund. I've given a lot of partial refunds because it's our fault or whatever, like, you know, or things break. But yeah, we do win most of the time and the horror stories are far and few between. That's good. Yeah. Similar in our experience as well. And, and I found that it's just been a better experience overall just giving them a partial refund up front. Hey, you know, even if it's something silly or even if it's kind of ridiculous, there's been some times we've offered partial refunds for the blender, not really, but something to that degree. And it's just overall been better for us. And really it's so important to have those five-star reviews too. And so that's the hard part about short-term rentals to be completely honest. And one thing that does frankly frustrate me about ours is that like you are kind of stuck with the, the five-star reviews yes. and you need those five-star reviews so bad to continue with your occupancy and continue getting plenty of guests in your home. And so that's something that can be a little frustrating. And I think, frankly, guests from time to time that the 2% know how to work the system to get discounts and to get money back and, and yes. so forth. So that can be frustrating too. But I agree with you. Overall, 
the vast majority are fantastic guests and it's been really fun to get to meet people and just have people stay at your place for their honeymoon and all kinds of other things, which is really cool to, to share those life experiences with them. Right. So that's awesome. Yeah. It kind of boosts uh, your ego a little bit too, because they're like, <laughs> this place is amazingly decorated. I'm like, man, I put that plant there. I got to design it on. So yeah, I mean, positive affirmations from the guests, overwhelming. I mean, yeah. it does make you feel good. Yeah. Why the luxury short-term rental space? I just it's a one better. Uh, yeah, uh, it was the guidance from my realtor, really. Like I said, I probably would have, if it were me, I would have bought something for 50,000 bucks. But it was like, what? These are going to be your headaches. And these are going to be the guests that you deal with. If you go up in this price point and have this bed count, you can get it to where you have multiple families. And so that's really was. And not only that, as far as a big part of why I was getting into this was the tax benefits. Mm -hmm. And what we found was like, hey, if you go down in your purchase price, you might feel better, but you're not going to get that amazing tax return that you would have got. So my CPA kind of guided me and she said, you know what? Yes, stick, stick within this purchase price because this is how much tax write-offs you need. So, awesome. yeah. And after the first one, it kind of just gave us, that's what we need to do. It's working yeah, out right. For sure. What do you think now makes a good Airbnb? Oh, that's difficult. Very good yeah. question, uh, right? Because I think back then when I was purchasing different short-term rentals, you could, I could have bought any one of those. I mean, I remember I had a list of 15 of them that we drove by, gave like, you know, like maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But to be honest with you, every single one of those would have worked and they would have cash flowed. They would have given amazing tax benefits. But now when I look at the ones that are struggling, those are the ones that kind of left it alone. And so for me, I like new modern. That's me, right? Mm -hmm. And those are the guests that I'm targeting and we're having a good time with that. What I can tell people is that those that don't reinvest into their business are going to struggle. And so what you need to do, and we haven't found the magic number yet, where it's like, hey, set aside 5% of your gross revenue and to pour it right back into your short-term rental. So if you're grossing $100,000, that might be $5,000 every single year to just continuously update it just a little bit. I mean, businesses don't do that. Like businesses all the time will reinvent themselves, have new logos and have new looks, mm -hmm. but you can't stay looking like the same business over and over and expect to compete. So you're going to have to always uh, reinvest back into your business. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, I think it's tough right now in the Airbnb space and we've all heard of Airbnb bust and all that stuff. I think what you're doing, the luxury market is fantastic. It sounds like, and I know you have really well-furnished homes and great locations and have your kind of target market picked out. And I think that's really helpful. Like you said, a lot of the folks that just took the cell phone pics of, of their house and didn't do anything with the furnishings and it looks like grandma's basement, those are the ones that are really struggling on Airbnb right now. What are your, kind of your thoughts on the short-term rental market in the future? And kind of what about regulations? Does that scare you at all? Or what are your thoughts in regards to short-term rental regulations? Yeah, it scares me and excites me at the same time, which I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> so for example, I went to a market in Arizona and Arizona is like wide open where the state has a law saying that cities cannot ban short-term rentals, right? HLAs can, like there could be CCRs that ban them, but the states itself, like let's say Phoenix, Arizona, they cannot come down and say minimum 30 days, right? But the thing is, if it ever does, like we talked to the mayor in this city or have the interview with this mayor 
he said that if there were ever to have that regulation, that the ones that have short-term rentals now would be grandfathered in. And so what that does is it creates like this unbalance of supply and demand where it's a, such a great area where people want to buy short-term rentals. And so if this is a four bedroom home, that's a short-term rental that generates, let's say $200,000 in gross revenue versus this home that is a primary residence that you can't short-term rental out. Well, I can't buy this home that's a primary residence and short-term rental it out, I have to buy the ones that are existing short-term rentals, which actually kind of drive up the appreciation for that home right. in the future. It's kind of tricky uh, because I, I don't want to plop a million dollars down on a short-term rental and then all of a sudden I have to do a long-term rental and my numbers don't work. That's the scary part. But you just have to figure out the market, talk to as many investors in that area, and hopefully your realtor is very in tune with what's going on in the city. Perfect answer. Yeah, completely agree. How let's talk now, if you don't mind, kind of about the the fun pivot in the hotel and, and kind of next steps for that. How did that all come to be? I have no idea, man. I guess like a lot of this stuff, like the harder you work, the luckier you get. You kind of just start working, networking, adding value to people, and then all of a sudden you get to this place where things are kind of falling into your lap. And so I've been networking with as many investors as possible. And so a lot of people are always like, hey, you want to work together? You want to do something big together? And that's kind of what happened where I looked at it. Because if anything, I never have to grow again. With my portfolio, I could just call it a day and be like, you know what? I don't have to work anymore. But I was like, you know, life's too short. Why not just go for it? And then I found a couple investors who already purchased hotels. And I said, let's just see this through. Maybe we really do enjoy the hospitality aspect and that's where true wealth can be built just over time. So I just took a leap of faith and said, Let, let's go for it. I obviously did a ton of research before this and into why commercial real estate is the way to go. And I did want to mix it up. I wanted to have a, a diversification of, of my portfolio. Yeah, that's awesome. What is kind of starting a fund look like? So I guess it would be before that it's really assembling the team. That's where it is because like one person that wants to start a fund, I think it's way too much work for them. It's really like I have someone who is a for former attorney and she could like look at contracts way easier than me. Like I'm reading it. I'm like, I don't know what this is. Where are the emojis on this contract? Like can someone <laughs> break it down for me or simplify it? So she's better at that. And then we have someone on our team who does operations on hotels. I have no idea on how to operate a hotel. And so he's a key factor in that. And then we have someone that raises money very well, right? And so when you start putting your team together, then you could start thinking, oh, maybe we could put this fund together. And then there's all of the boring stuff. You know, you really just go to an attorney and be like, and, and just kind of lay it out for them and then use their guidance. Like, okay, here's the framework. And then here's what you guys need to do after that. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking before this about like just how crazy it is to be able to raise money and buy real estate. And do you remember that first moment when that first check or deposit hit the bank account from somebody else? How did that make you feel going from the beginning with 2008 and the foreclosures yeah. to now like this incredible empire that you've built? Yeah. Well, the, so the first ones were ourselves. Like we did invest into our own funds and that was my own money. So that was nerve wracking. Like what if this doesn't work? I just plopped a hundred 
thousand dollars into this fund that I might lose and I have kids going to college. Right. And so we believed in it so much that we put in our own money. But the thing is, I think just over time, there have been so many people that always told me you provided so much value to us. If there's any deal that you ever come across and you want to do something together, let me know. And at a certain point, there was just so many people telling me that. And that's when I was like, okay, let's do the fun thing and raise money. But you're right. Like people do wire. I'm like, are you sure? Like a hundred thousand bucks. Is, I mean, to me, to me, shoot, $10,000 is a lot of money to me. Yeah. Right. And so when someone wires over a hundred thousand dollars just to try you out, like, oh, okay, I'll throw a hundred thousand. If you give me a good return, I might do something else. You're like, huh. Am I really that poor? Like, I mean, <laughs> there's so much more money out there. And the thing is, if you could see people out there are looking for people like you or me that can multiply their money. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more than we think. And so, yeah, that, really exciting. And actually, I wish I could give out a couple of the names because they're actually pretty famous people. But <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it, it was wild. It's such a overwhelming responsibility and like, such a cool opportunity and we feel very honored every time we work with investors and i completely agree it, for us it, in our company it was, like, it was such a big hurdle to get over to get to the point where we're like okay it's time yeah. and then we hosted one webinar and we were fully funded and we're like holy cow this is crazy why haven't we been doing this the whole time and so just really cool and, and a great it's needed to scale especially when you're putting 25 yes. percent down on properties on commercial properties for the most part, have a little bit more down payment requirements. Well, why hotels then? It sounds like definitely some experience with the folks in the fund, but what gets you excited about hotels? Yeah, so a little background. My great aunt actually owned a motel on the Las Vegas Strip. And so in the back of my mind, there was always like, I always thought it was cool. I I guess a lot of my family thought it was cool too, but they thought it was a pain in the butt. But deep down, I was like, "Mm, maybe I want to do something like that. It was actually a motel on the Strip, like near where the thanks for visiting Las Vegas sign in. And it's actually, I think the airport, I actually wound up buying them out in like the early 2000s for a nice little profit. But yeah, yeah, in the back of my mind, that was always something. And before I got into short-term rentals, I was actually um, trying to get into multifamily, invested passively in some deals, took like a, a course on how to analyze deals. And so I always knew I wanted to get into the commercial asset of it or commercial side of real estate. And it was kind of a natural progression. I looked at like playing Monopoly. You're buying, like that's really been my story. Rolling the dice, going around, landing on jail, starting over, (laughs) going around, landing and paying people rent. And I'm thinking, man, there has to be something to this. And so you start buying different spaces. I start buying the cheap ones and realize I'm not getting anywhere with this wound up landing on boardwalk, which is what I felt like my first short-term rental was, was the luxury short-term rental. And people were landing on boardwalk, paying me good money. And so I felt like I was making money on that. And so I felt like I had to level up into some red hotels. So that was really the natural progression. And I knew I wanted to get into the commercial, but apartments didn't really excite me anymore. And they still do. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to own one, but it was like, we really love the hospitality aspect of it. I remember the conversation. I said, hey, I'd love to buy a multifamily, let's say a 20, 30 unit and just short term rental that thing out. And someone said, you mean a hotel? I was <laughs> like, oh, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. Anytime Monopoly can get brought up in a conversation is a good one, especially for real estate because <laughs> it's perfect. So the f- first hotel or the hotel for you, that's in Arkansas, correct? 
Northwest Arkansas, and don't ask me to find it on the map. <laughs> it's kind of like how I bought all of these. I could locate it now, but because we've done extensive research. But yes, Northwest Arkansas, home of Walmart's amazing amount of money that's being poured into that region. That's why we were really yeah. excited about it. So. That's cool. Are you guys self-managing the hotel? Uh, yeah. So one of the operators in the fund, uh, they actually live in Bensonville, Arkansas. Okay. And so we acquired it in April. And so it's a lot of work. I mean, he's been on site, like transitioning it over, putting it our systems for uh, a good part of the time. Uh, but yeah, he's managing everything, hiring, firing people and putting in the systems in place. Eventually, because it, it's a Wyndham okay. and we have to stick with the Wyndham brand for 15 months until we uh, transform it into a boutique hotel where we nice. create our own name and redesign it. So that's going to be that's a whole nother beast there. Yeah. Any name ideas so far? Yeah, the Alex Hotel. Yeah, I'll come stay there. Yeah, I think it's getting struck down and voted against. But (laughs) no, we don't have a name yet. That's awesome. If Alex's can stay there for free, count me in. That's cool. So are are you guys planning to do some renovations to it to make it uh, more boutique? Or is it already in pretty good shape for you? Well, it was built in 2008. It's really good shape and there's really nothing like we could stick with the brand. But what you find is you have franchise fees and you have, you have what's called a PIP. So that's a mm-hmm. property improvement plan. And so, you know, Wyndham's not going to let you paint it whatever color and, you know, put whatever floors you're going to have to stick with their brand and their, you know, everything that they recommend. But we didn't want to do that. And the the cost to to stick with their brand versus the cost of us renovating it were, were pretty close. And yeah. so we said, let's screw it. Let's just create our own brand. And the good part of it is of our uh, general partners have already done that. They've taken two hotels that they bought and created their own brand. And the amount of money that they're renting it out because it's a different than just your standard like Motel 6 or Hilton or whatever. It's just a different experience that people will actually pay for. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I know for us, the Shalo family, we definitely pay a few extra bucks more to stay in a boutique, you know, mom and pop kind of motel just for the experience and just to support those local businesses as well. So yeah. that's really cool. I'll have to connect with you after I, I got a buddy who's really big into the boutique hotel space. And if you guys aren't familiar with each other, it'd be a, it'd be a good connection, but that's really cool. So plan to buy more of these in the future? I do. It's just extremely difficult. Like the interest rates uh, are difficult already in the single family home. It's almost worse in the multifamily landless uh, or commercial space. The numbers are really tight. And it, you know, the one thing is, Alex, we're investing other investors' money. Mm-hmm. And if it were just me and my money, I would have gone for a lot of these deals. But I'm way conservative. I am not trying to lose anyone's money. And it has to almost be like a home run or nice solid double or triple. You know what I mean? Uh, I am not trying to go up there, swing the back and strike out. So what I'm finding is I have to be a lot more conservative. And so we're passing up on deals uh, because it's not there. Yeah, I know. Agreed. It's definitely worth it to protect the investor and and ultimately benefit the investor even more in the future. So yeah, always keep the investor in mind for sure. Do you think that the hotel space is going to uh, experience any sort of uh, crash, if you will, like the commercial multifamily spaces? 
Well, uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of loans that are due and where people are going to have to refinance here soon. I don't know why people didn't get like a 30-year or 25-year fix, but there's always like a, a, a good percentage of people where if they're going to refinance this year or next year, the interest rates have spiked so much that it just doesn't cash flow for them yeah. anymore, especially if they're bad operators and where their numbers are tight. So there will definitely be some deals there. That's kind of the whole point of the fund. We wanted to have money upfront saved versus finding a deal and then having to raise money for it. Mm -hmm. Like we're sitting here ready, waiting for a deal. And our first hotel we purchased for $3.6 million and it appraised for $6.5 million. Whoa. So those are the home run deals that we're yeah. looking for. And we're just kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting for something to come to us just like that. Yeah. $2.9 million worth of equity on day one doesn't sound bad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's yes. awesome. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, that's definitely a home run. Well, I could certainly talk to you all night, but want to be respectful of your time. If folks are interested in reaching out to you, learning more, learning more about the fund, how can they do that? So I'm pretty active on Instagram at the real Alex Abio, or if you just type in Alex Abio, you'll find me. I do post a lot of real estate content, but a lot of like stupid stuff about my Cleveland Browns losing all the time or <laughs> how much I love LeBron James. And it, that kind of pisses people off. <laughs> but also on Facebook, you could find me, Alex Sabio. I do have a Facebook group called Healthcare Professionals Investing in Real Estate, yes. where I love helping other healthcare professionals get started or even kind of guide them uh, along the way. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll be sure to put the links to that in the show notes. Speaking of the Cleveland Browns, I'm actually good friends with Wyatt Teller, who plays on the line mm. for the Browns. We went to high school together, good buddies. Yeah, so I feel your pain because I root <laughs> for the Browns for him and it's been rough. So we'll see what happens this year. It's rough every year. I just kind of, <laughs> know. it's like you embrace the suck, but you're going to have a bad day at work and you just kind of go through it. There's always hope. This is the best time of the year because every single year we think we're going to win the Super Bowl until two games in. And absolutely, we realize we're the Browns. Yeah. Well, that's one game more than the Washington Commanders or football team, whatever you want to call them. Oh. That's been my team. Yeah, it's just been a disappointment my whole life, to be honest. So we'll see with new ownership. But well, Alex, is there anything we didn't hit on that you'd like to touch base on? No, that's good. I mean, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, I love talking real estate. I love helping people out. If there's any way I could add value to people, just reach out anytime. I love talking. This has been awesome. I love talking with you. love this conversation. We'll have to have you on again sometime when you get a couple more hotels. But with that, we'll go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, it's been Alex and Alex with another episode of the Physicians and Properties podcast, signing off. Hey, real quick, if you're still listening to this, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this podcast is to help 100,000 physicians learn how investing in real estate can give you the freedom to practice medicine and live life how you want. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is the ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you can please leave me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one to two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the physicians that we want to reach. Thanks in advance and talk to you on the next episode. Please note that the information shared on this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered financial or medical advice. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the host and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force.